What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me is Jared, and we have a special guest tonight. We are going to be talking to Randall Rouser, also known as the Tentative Apologist on Twitter. So how's it going, Randall? Going great, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Uh, you recently published a book. Uh, so it's a uh, targeted one of many at, books, actually. One of many books, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about the most recent one. This one's targeted at a doubting audience, which is us. So we thought uh, it'd be cool to bring you on and have you talk about it. But before we get into that, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I live in Edmonton, Canada. I've been here for 18, 19 I think it's almost 20 years, not that it matters, but uh, teaching at the same seminary, uh, Taylor Seminary, which is now part of what we call Kairos University. I have a wife and a daughter and a couple dogs, motorbike. Um, let's see. And then I like to write books. And so I teach in the areas of, of theology, systematic theology in particular, apologetics, worldview, church history. And I write on a variety of topics. So this is my 16th book. And this one is called The Doubter's Creed. And it's how to be a Christian when you don't believe it's true. So that's where we are. Uh, so that title, it's a great title, by the way, because it definitely grabbed my attention. Uh, so I picked it up and I've started been, uh, been reading through it. And it seemed like from the intro, the thesis of the book is kind of, or the target audience is kind of people who would like Christianity to be to be true, but are either a believer, but are kind of struggling with a period of doubt, or they don't believe and like they can't convince themselves of it. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, so I identified two different groups, although you could say they overlap. So the one group are what I call Christian doubters, people who identify as Christian, but they've got some significant doubts about Christian doctrine. And the other group are what I call sympathetic disbelievers, and those are people who have an interest in becoming a Christian, but they're like, yeah, but there's, oh, I can't believe all these doctrines. And, and I mean, this is a big thing because as I begin the book by pointing out that Christianity is kind of unique in its emphasis uh, on doctrine, at least among major world religions. If you compare it, for example, to Judaism, you just have the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, thy God, the Lord is one. This is the central confession of Judaism. Islam, you've got the five pillars. Christianity has been producing detailed creeds, catechisms, um, statements of belief, confessions for 1800, close to 2000 years. And there's a lot there that you're supposed to believe. And so for a person who wants to become a Christian, but they're like, yeah, but how do I believe this? I, uh, I don't know how to believe it. So I offer a response to that. Yeah. I was curious uh, when, when I first heard the title of your book, it reminded me of like Mark nine twenty four. you know, I believe help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. Did that come across your mind at all when you were writing this? Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I actually referred to that story, the pericope, we would call it. So that's a man who's desperate for healing for his child. And Jesus says, anything is possible for those who believe. And he's in this impossible moment there, this moment where he desires to believe that Jesus can save his child, but he also is hampered by doubt. So he says, it's sort of a double-minded statement. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's a pretty good statement for a lot of people is like they want to believe, but they're also tripped up by doubt. So, yeah. Yeah. So what is it you recommend? Just pitch me your entire book here in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing What's that. I love when people ask that. <laughs> What's the course of action that I as a doubter? Because so to, full disclosure, uh, I've 
I've been asked several times by many people if uh, I would like it to live in a world where God exists. And that really depends on the God we're talking about, you know? Um, but if we're talking about the God of the fellow who gave me this shirt, for example, uh, he's a progressive Christian. He emphasizes loving his neighbor and we're doing works of charity and, you know, uh, providing uh, help to those who are downtrodden. And the God he describes is one of love and charity and grace. And like, that God sounds awesome. You know, like that would be cool. Uh, the, there are certain other sects of Christianity that maybe their God's not so awesome. But uh, I think if if the God was the kind of God that many Christians say he is, I would like that God to be true. So what what should I do in that position? So just one thing I just want to say before jumping right into that. Um, I think that the one way we can kind of unite, now there's a lot of disagreement among Christians on how to understand the nature of God. But I do think that uh, we could get at least most Christians in agreement, if not quite all, by having them uh, sign on to a statement that says something like, well, God is a maximally perfect being. God is the most perfect being there could be. Or as Anselm famously put it, God is that being then which none greater could be conceived. So that you would say, okay, think about all the greatest things you can imagine. You know, the, the greatest expression of love, for example, something that's intrinsically good, like love, kindness, mercy. Now multiply that infinitely and that's what God is like. And of course, we may not even be able to grasp that, in which case God may transcend our understanding. But that's what we're talking about. Now, there will be aspects of Christian doctrine or the way that some Christians have understood doctrine that will seem to be inconsistent with what we understand to be loving or merciful or kind or good. And there are always two possibilities at least. So one possibility is that we are mistaken to some degree. And I think uh, when you recognize that human beings are fallible, we have to concede, yeah, it's possible that I'm mistaken. And I would like to say that if I am mistaken to some degree about what goodness or kindness or love or mercy looks like, then I would be open to being corrected in that area, just like in any other area. On the other hand, it's also possible that the conception of God that has been presented to us is incorrect and it needs to be adjusted to more closely align with that which is truly good, perfect, lovely, merciful, etc. So that's just a little bit of an aside on that issue. But if we kind of just keep in view the kind of God you're talking about, which for the sake of purpose, we'll just say is maximally loving, good God. So what do we do? Well, what I, what apologists often do is they try to provide evidence for God to, to win people over. So you provide arguments and evidence, and that's what apologetics is about. Now, apologetics is often, it has a bad rap, right? Because it's often viewed as being about manipulation and things like that. Almost like kind of the used car salesman or something, right? They'll just tell you whatever they can to get you to buy into their religion or to buy their automobile. Formerly and, used car salesman here, so. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Were, you, were you a used car salesman, Jared? Yeah, sorry, I, that was sidetracked. I actually yeah. did not know that about you. Learned a new thing today. <laughs> well, and I've had a wonderful used car salesman. Like I, one of my cars I bought 18 years ago from this guy, and I still have it. So, yeah, yeah. Just okay, like so they're not all bad. Else. Yeah, they're not they all bad. They can go to heaven too. <laughs> and it's the same with apologists. I mean, some some aren't great at what they do, and and they spin facts. They they're spin doctors. They have an agenda. They have their biases, and they wear them proudly, or maybe not proudly, but unawares on their sleeve. But there are other cases of people that are just honestly trying to provide arguments and evidence for something they believe to be both true and important. And because they value other people, 
they want other people to come to hold the thing that they believe to be true and important. And I think that's a noble enterprise. And in fact, I think everybody is an apologist to some degree about something, right? We're always trying to win people over to our view of things on some particular issue. So, yeah, I'm getting, I'm kind of getting lost here where I, no, I think, I about. well, I haven't finished your book. I, I'm trying, I'm going, I will read it all, but uh, I think in the first part I read, you mentioned that these apologists, you called them like an agitation apologetics, right? Versus where you, then you kind of go into like comparing Paul and the Mars Hill episode. Well, yeah. So um, what I've, what I've called agitation apologetics is, is not exactly the same as, as just providing evidence, but what an agitation apologetic approach does is it tries to emphasize the difference with with the interlocutor with the person you're talking mm-hmm. to and it tries to to create dissatisfaction in them with their current belief system so for example if you have a christian apologist who's talking to an atheist i find that often they they take an uh, agitation approach and what they try to do is to emphasize how they understand atheism just to lack any adequate understanding of goodness or of meaning or purpose and that atheism just collapses into nihilistic despair. So that if you're an atheist, they want to force you to choose between nihilistic despair or coming over and becoming a Christian theist. And one of the problems I think with that is I just don't think it's true. I think that there are atheists who are not nihilists and not compelled to be nihilists, that they've actually got a rich and interesting understanding of things like moral goodness and value and purpose. And so I think the better way than to try to create agitation and maximize contrast and difference is to build a bridge and maximize continuity and congruence. And that is what I think that Paul was actually doing in Mars Hill in Acts 17, when he famously goes to a group of quote unquote pagans. Uh, So you have here Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And what he does is he tries to build a bridge with them. And he starts with the whole group. And he says, well, you've got a a statue here to an unknown God. I want to tell you about that God. And so what Paul is doing there is he's finding a point of contact with them. He's saying, look, you have a noble impulse to reach out to something you don't quite yet understand. And I agree with that. I affirm that. And I want to tell you more about that and build from it. And then he even goes further with the Stoics. And he quotes from two Stoic philosophers he says, in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. That's what your Stoic philosophers have said, and I want to affirm that as well. Now, I always kind of laugh today. When I when I talk with Christians, some Christians freak out when, let's say, a Christian favorably quotes the Dalai Lama or something like that. And he says, hey, this is a quote from the Dalai Lama. And then this other guy, maybe he's more conservative, he's like, what are you doing? That's like a false religion or, or you know, that's syncretism <laughs> or something. Putting no. your trust in man, not the word. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, it's, a, it, you know, it's the, I mean, you have all sorts of different views, but they're all negative. It's all like, no, you're selling yourself out. But no, all truth is God's truth. And what that person is doing by quoting the Dalai Lama is assuming it's a good quote, and I've seen many good quotes from the Dalai Lama, is that this is doing nothing else than what Paul did in Mars Hill and recognizing that God's truth is found across belief systems to various degrees. And I mean, often it's not found in the Christian church. I mean, this is just a reality. This isn't something that uh, Jesus warns us about when he says, talks about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, this famous unsettling parable where he says, 
There are some people that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things for you? And he will say, I never knew you. And then other people in the parable, they're saying, Lord, when did we do these things? They're counted as sheep. And he says, so much as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And so there's a complete upsetting there of the expectations as to who is in and who's out. And I think we always need to keep that in mind. And that means that God's truth is to be found all sorts of places. And that is an opportunity for us to build a bridge with those people. And does that go back to, you know, if you, with that first statement where you said, if all Christians could kind of um, have this one like creed where like God is maximally good. And so in that sense, anything that affirms goodness or, or love in that sense would be a, um, would come out of God or if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say, like, Look, uh, I'll put it like this, just very simply, is, so to go back to Matthew 25, what Jesus describes there is a series of behaviors. So people are in prison and you visit them. People are sick and you comfort them. People are hungry and you feed them. People are lonely and you sit with them and you, you, you're with them and you communicate with them and love them. If you're doing those things, then to that those degrees, you are on the same team, right? That's... Jesus stuff. It's yeah. the kind of stuff Jesus does. So start I, there. Yeah. I I think the approach of bridge building is important because even if at the end of that bridge building conversation you didn't end up converting them on the spot, well, you've at least built a bridge, right? Now you have something you didn't have before, you know? Uh and I think that if both sides could focus more on like the thing the shared values we have, humanity as a whole would be better off. So yeah, like even the 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 language of of converting somebody. Um, what I think we always need to keep in mind is in our interactions with other people, uh, they may end up converting us to certain things that they believe and do that we are impacted positively by as much as we do to them. When when you have like a conversation, and one person's like, I'm you know they want to share their point with the other person, and the only time they shut up is like when the other person talks and you can tell they're just forming a response already. They're not ready. Just waiting to respond. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like this is when I went to graduate school, hard to believe almost 30 years ago, that's what the graduate seminar was often like. It's a very unpleasant place to be because you had a long table in a room with fluorescent lights and a bunch of people who are intelligent, but all really looking to prove themselves in front of the professor who's leading the seminar. And so every time someone's making a point, everybody else is already formulating their rebuttal and trying to be even more clever. And they're not learning and listening to one another. And so it's not just about converting people. when, When I interact with other people, I want to learn from them as much as I want to share with them what I have to believe. And people pick up on that. People pick up on when you're, I mean, I've learned this from 25 years of marriage is my wife would always say, you're not listening. Cause like my eyes would start to glaze over or something. Mm. And I, I, and then I would say, oh, I am listening. You just said this. And I repeat back to what she just said. But gradually I learned that listening is not simply about regurgitating like a tape recorder, what a person just said. Listening is about really taking in what they've said and being changed by it. Mm. Yeah part of the attitude of being of being interested in what the other person has to say and being open to uh, changing your mind if, you know, their points are good and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, uh, 
in the book, you talk about uh, steps you can take if you're in this position of uh, kind of eager doubting where you would like it to be true, but don't. So uh, you describe some like st- things you can do to like basically live a more Christ-like life. Um, things like just, you know, living out kindness and stuff like that. So w- other than the obvious value of being a good person, like what's the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, in your mind, that um, gets one closer to living the Christian faith. So, um, um, I break it up into different major groups, just to try to organize the landscape. There are, of course, innumerable different beliefs and doubts a person might have, but it helps just to have a basic framework. So, the basic framework I, I start off with is people I call naturalists, and there's much dispute about how to define the term naturalism. Just like there's a dispute about how to define the term theism or atheism or something else. But the way that I kind of work with a definition of naturalism there is naturalism is essentially the view that that which is the the object of study in the natural sciences is absolute. There's nothing beyond it. That which we typically call nature or the cosmos. Carl Sagan famously said the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. That would be one expression of naturalism. And so there may be somebody from that stance that they're like, I really would, I'm interested in Christianity, but I don't really feel that there's anything beyond nature. How could I be a Christian? And so for those people, I I articulate what is a simple and yet I think profound creed. And the essence of it is to seek to love your neighbor as yourself in emulation of the life and teaching of Jesus. If you're like, you know what, the way that Jesus teaches uh, about how to treat others the way I would want to be treated and to love others as I love myself, that is a lifelong project. And I want to start on that project. And the reality is that is a project that no Christian masters in their life, no matter how orthodox they may be in confession. So um, that is a huge task. And just for that naturalist who's not compelled that there's anything beyond nature, they could still commit to, to, pursuing that as a life course. And that I think is pretty profound in and of itself. So that's the starting point. It sounds a little bit like, um, not exact that the context is different, but I have a good friend of mine who's Jewish and he's an atheist, but he's still acts in Jewish ways for him. It's because of the culture and it's an important touchstone for him. But like for his identity as being a Jewish man is not tied up with his faith in God. It's tied up with what he does in his community and for other people. And it sounds like you're describing something similar, at least as a starting point, where even if you don't believe that the evidence points to a God, you could still act in moral ways, basically. So I give an illustration at the end of a chapter. Uh, it's, it's a 1994 Rwanda uh, during the genocide, the infamous genocide. And there are two different responses to the genocide and that I, I consider. And so the one response was that of a pastor, a Christian pastor named Elzefenne Nikotarama. Uh, and he was um, he was um, Hutu, which was the, the group that was committing the genocide. And many of his congregants were Tutsis, and they were they were the, ob- the subjects or the targets of the genocide. And they were hiding, and they reached out to their pastor begging for him to help them escape. And when he found out where they were, instead he sent in killing militias to slaughter his own congregants. So that's the first one. He had an orthodox theology. He confessed all the right doctrines. And then he ended up 
uh, sending in militias to slaughter his congregants. The second guy, Mabaye Diagni, he was Senegalese. He wasn't even from Rwanda, but he was with UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda. And every day he defied the orders to stay within the Unimur camp, and which is where they weren't supposed to go out. Uh, but he went out and uh, in his land cruiser, he would load Tutsis up into the, his land cruiser or his Jeep. And then he would drive to the Hutu checkpoints where you've got like 19-year-olds wielding machetes trying to act tough. And he would joke with them and bargain with cigarettes and get through the checkpoints and get Tutsis into what you may know as Hotel Rwanda, uh, where they were often keeping many of them. And he ended up saving, I don't know, close to 100 Tutsis before he was killed in, in the field. And so uh, now he was Muslim. But whether he's Muslim or let's say he's a naturalist instead, who would you rather be? And I would ask, I always ask Christians this. Who would you rather be if you're standing before the throne of God of those two options? Uh, would you rather be the guy who had the Orthodox Christian confession and slaughtered his congregants? Or would you want to be the guy who was a naturalist but who strived to love his neighbor as himself? And you know what people say sometimes to escape this? They say, well, that's a false dichotomy. It's not a false dichotomy. I mean, that's like saying, if you're stranded in the woods, would you rather have a Bowie knife or a magnifying glass? Um, that's not a false dichotomy. It's just saying, which of these two things would you rather have? And I'm saying, which of these two lives would you rather live? Right. You got to choose. Right. I mean, and you I'll could, go with love. You could say that, I mean, there is a better third option, perhaps. That doesn't change that one of these two is still better than the other, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Now, I've yeah. heard you, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the past you said that you're not a proponent of doxastic voluntarism. Like you, you think that's a false, like somebody can't willfully change their belief. So um, are you purporting like for this person who's on the edge and they, they go through the most like, all right, I can recognize that Jesus is a great character and that loving people is a good thing. And that the living like a Christian and living the Christian values will eventually lead to a belief? Or is that something... Or does that not matter? Or does that not matter? Yeah, in that sense. Well, I can't. Uh, so in terms of doxastic voluntarism, so doxastic refers to belief for those who don't know. And in voluntarism here refers to things that pertain to the will. So an act of will. Can you believe something by an act of will? And I don't think you can believe by an act of will. I do think you can change your beliefs by willing to undertake particular actions. Mm. So, um, but you can't determine what exact beliefs you're going to end up having. <laughs> yeah. I, I just watched an interesting little video by a, a fellow and it was with the right wing watch Twitter stream that they put this little clip of a Christian lawyer saying that he didn't think that Christian schools should allow kids with gay parents into the school because uh, when other people interact with the gay parents, essentially like they might begin to rethink their traditional stances. And I, I kind of <laughs> reflected, I mean, this is really in terms of its logic, it's no different than, than the argument people would have against integrating the schools, right? Uh, 50 mm. years ago and say, well, if, if you begin to have black kids with white kids, the white kids will have to rethink their thoughts about the black population. Yeah. But Which may be a, a good thing, actually. <laughs> well, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. the point is maybe the fact that experience forces you to change your beliefs is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but the thing that I just in terms of doxastic voluntarism is um, when you encounter when like I can decide if I'm worried I might have a prejudice, I can decide to spend time around people of the group that I think I'm prejudiced toward. 
that could end up changing my prejudice. But in certain circumstances, it could also lead you to retrench in your prejudice, right? If you have end up having a bad experience with the group that you are prejudiced against, it reinforces your stereotypes. So, so we can't ensure the kind of belief that we will end up having, but we can undertake actions to influence our beliefs at the very least. Uh, now, in terms of, sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, but but in, in terms of then the question you had, like, so then what do you do or does belief matter at all? Well, I mean, I think belief matters. Important, It's important to have true beliefs to the extent that we're able to. But I also think that nobody is saved um, or reconciled to God in Christ because they got a certain list of beliefs correct. I think they're saved to God in Christ because they're in relationship with Christ. Uh, now, belief is a part of that, but is it always a part of that? Is it necessarily a part of that? That in and of itself, I think, is something that the vast majority of Christians actually don't accept. Because the vast majority of Christians believe that a child who dies in utero or at two years old or four years old, that they're not going to hell because they didn't accept the Apostles' Creed. I mean, most people would think that's absurd. Uh, and what I would simply propose is just follow that logic out. I once had somebody who tried, tried to get me removed from my position where I teach because I was arguing for an, what I call an, a hopeful inclusivism about groups outside of Christianity. And so I put it directly to this person. And I said, okay, a 12-year-old Jewish girl dies in Auschwitz. And she dies rejecting Christianity. But the Christianity she rejected is the Christianity of the Third Reich, which is the only Christianity she'd ever known. Am I obliged to believe that she's in hell in order to teach here? And uh, that person didn't have a response. And that's what you have to do, is you have to kind of make it clear what the implications of a person's position are. So what I think is that most Christians, the vast majority, are actually hopefully inclusive about at least some groups. And so what I would just suggest is keep following that that track and uh, and see how far you can go with it. So uh, just to play devil's advocate a bit, because I can hear what the uh, audience is going to be saying, I can already hear them shouting it, uh, is, well, isn't this just like a dressed up version of Pascal's wager, just fake being a Christian until you're a Christian? Uh, isn't that what you're doing, Randall? Says my audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mentioned Pascal's wager in the book, but uh, Pascal's wager. I mean, there, there's there's some overlap with with what Pascal does and what I do. Now, he of course has a whole probability calculus framework of reasoning, and I'm not doing that. The one place where there is overlap between what I do and what Pascal does is that at the end of his wager, he says, "Well, what about people who are just still, even with the wager? They're like, yeah, but I, I don't really find that I believe. And then Pascal says, well, just get into the Christian community, begin to partake in communion and partake of the sacraments and just see what happens. And I mean, that's my last chapter actually, is to explore that whole framework of, of uh, what I call the doubter's creed at that point, which is to recognize that the creed when you confess a creed, there, there's much more there than just say, I believe these things. The creed rather is about a community identification. It's about, I identify with this community. So think by analogy of, of marriage vows, right? When a couple confesses a marriage vow, they proclaim a marriage vow. Uh, are they going to believe those vows at every point in their marriage? Are they going to buy into those vows at every point in their marriage? Maybe not. Maybe not in the dark night of the soul that 
many marriages go through, right? They're rethinking those vows. But the marriage is sustained not because they believe every confession that they made on their marriage day. It's rather because even despite the doubts, they persist in what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. And that would be my advice too, is, is if people really want to be part of this community, start loving your neighbor, begin to love God to the degree that you're able, and join a Christian community and partake, some, partake in the works of love and the mission of that community and make the world a better place. And then that's how you begin to live into the creed. Yeah, I can see something what you're saying about there being more to just the creeds and the words. Uh, the church I used to go to, we read out of the Book of Common Prayer, and it was very powerful to know that, like, at that same time, other Christians across the world were also reading from the Book of Common Prayer and, you know, following a very um, similar path. And even though there were certain things within in the words at the time that I was struggling with, I still had this sense of, like... Um, common <laughs> that's in the name you know like i was akin to people and we were believing something together so um i, I think that's powerful actually too to be able to speak creed even if you're not a hundred percent committed to to what it's saying so and like you said ultimately i mean i i think that um well i agree that it's important to have or I would like to have true beliefs, you know, so if God is real, I'd like to believe that. And if God is not real, I'd like to believe that, you know, but ultimately it's far less important to me that someone is an atheist or is a Christian as to whether or not they're a good person and like a positive force in the world. Like I would hands down every day prefer a Christian who's active and helping their community and is loving and caring to, you know, the stereotypical torch wielding atheist who, you know, <laughs> yeah, like I would, I, I would much prefer the one over the other because ultimately like what's important is that we're all getting to along together on this planet as opposed to, you know. Yeah. Well, that actually brings us back to the first chapter on naturalism. Cause I quote there from Carl Sagan where in, in his book on the pale blue dot, he has this really eloquent passage where he talks about how we're all alone on this pale blue dot and there's no help coming from outside. And essentially we need to learn how to live with one another. If we're going to, sustain this human project in the middle of a vast, infinitely ancient and large hostile universe. And I say, look, uh, the simple mandate of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself, that is pretty good advice uh, for the naturalist who was taken by Carl Sagan's vision of a common humanity. And so start there. And yeah, I mean, as, as I said with my illustration of contrasting these two different responses in the Rwandan genocide, I think the form of Christian life is ultimately more important than getting all the right beliefs. And I say that as a systematic theologian who's uh, written multiple books on different topics, lectures to graduate students about doctrine, but uh, to think that doctrine is more important than doing the things Jesus talked about uh, in terms of loving your neighbor, I think would just be a misbegotten prioritization of values. The one thing I think that I was missing from the book and just the general thesis is that there has to be some sort of willingness to want to, to have an interest in Christianity, right? Because I could say, well, you know, there's some good tenets of Islam, so I could just go and, you know, live a good life and follow the tenets of Islam that are good. I mean, we could argue about whether that's good or not, but there may be another world system or worldview out there that has very similar tenets. And so there, there needs to be something that would pull this person into Christianity to have that interest there to begin with, correct? 
So like why Christianity as opposed to an alternative option? Yeah. So again, that would go go uh, back to another project than this book is concerned with, because this book already begins with right. people who have mm-hmm. that interest in Christianity. Yeah. There, there are conversations. Um, for example, the Catholic Church since Vatican II has taken a view of other religions uh, that they drew from a theologian named Karl Rahner which is very inclusivistic. And they actually, from Rahner, they would refer to people from other religions who are living essentially a Christian life as anonymous Christians. Not that they're saved by doing good works, as so many Protestants will right away assume, but rather that uh, that the good works that they do are evidence of God's salvific presence within their life, within that religious tradition. So that God is salvifically working in Buddhism or in Islam or in some other religion. And despite some of the false beliefs in the doctrines of those other religions, just like God works in Christianity, despite some of the false beliefs that are held by Christians. So that is certainly an option that that one could understand God's grace is working in those other religions. And to the extent that you are seeing the kinds of things produced by adherence to those religions that are reflective of the life and teaching of Jesus, then that could be evidence of God's presence working in their life. So what do you say to, since we talked about some of the things that I know my atheist audience is going to be talking about, what do you, what would you say to some of the Christians that I've, like the Christian tradition I came from as a fundamentalist when I grew up and uh, they might point to pick your proof text from wherever in the Bible saying this is forbidden. Uh, we'll pick on the LGBT community since that's a hot button topic. So uh, I take it that you wouldn't endorse the sort of hateful stance that some churches have, but uh, they might point to those and say, well, you're you're enabling someone's sin or something like that. So what would your response be to that? Christians disagree over uh, the ethics of same-sex relationships And so you have six, seven passages. I mean, the most important passages on that topic are from Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. I would say those are probably the two most important, Timothy as well. Um, But there's actually a range of ways to think about those. And some of them, um, okay, forget the the name now, but... but, uh, um, David Gushy, for example, would be a good book. He was written, he wrote a book called Changing Our Mind. He's an evangelical Christian ethicist, so very close, I think, to the fundamentalism that you would have grown up with. Uh, but he ended up rethinking his position and taking what you could call an inclusive or affirming view or what have you, and arguing that in his book. And what what concerns me often is that Christians who have a very strong stance on that position, I understand why, uh, but they typically, they've not looked at other positions and how other people have principled exegetical reasons, in other words, interpreting the Bible, theological reasons, practical, historical, experiential, scientific reasons for taking a different stance on that issue. So uh, I like to begin by recognizing that. Now, the second thing I would just say that I often point out to some of these people that are really angry in the way you describe them is that they are typically applying a very inconsistent approach. For example, Jesus in in, in Matthew 19 and uh, Mark 10, he talks very clear and unequivocally, it would seem, that anybody who divorces for any reason other than porneia, which you could 
translate as marital unfaithfulness. For anybody who divorces and remarries for a reason other than that, their remarriage is adulterous. It's not actually a marriage. They're still married to the original person. What Jesus never mentions, for example, is a person who leaves a spouse because that spouse was beating them and threatening to kill them. So uh, if you want to follow that through consistently, I, I give people an illustration. I say, okay, so let's say that uh, you have got a couple. So, so this lady, she, she married this guy right out of high school, and then he was threatening to kill her. When she's 21 years old, she left him and divorced him. And uh, then she, she married a Christian guy at seminary 10 years later, and uh, then they raised a family together. And now they come to your church, and they're, they've both been married for 30 years to one another. Well, I mean, according to what Jesus says, they're actually adulterers because she's still married to the first guy that was her abuser when she was 20 years old. So uh, would you tell them that they can't come to your church because they're an open sin? And the interesting thing is that Christians always seem to find some way around that. And I'm actually thankful that they do, because the, <laughs> the alternative to say, no, you can't come here, you, adulter, you adulteress, is like just too terrible to think about. But what I would simply want people to do then is to say, okay, I have to be consistent. So if I'm going to begin to think outside of the box in these situations, then what about thinking outside of the box in some other situations? And at least that would, at the very least, that would give people a little bit of charity and humility rather than just anger when they're interacting with people that have a different experience and a different understanding of sexual relationships and marriage than they do. I think yeah. that's a powerful thing to actually, uh, even if it's a thought experiment or if it's a real, real world example um, it takes it out of the realm of like hypothetical, you know, just doctrine and actually grounds it in something that we can understand as humans, uh, which might make it more palatable to understand or even, as you say, maybe change your mind or think that maybe I need to rethink this. So Yeah. Sounds like a powerful conviction. Like you said, two things come to mind. Like uh, Jesus at one point uh, said that when, when he was talking about the Sabbath law, he said that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it, and that's clearly Jesus saying, yeah, okay, we've got these rules and that's great, but people are what's important. Or uh, when he's asked, you know, the famous example, he's given that legal quandary by the Pharisees and he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And the two he lists are love God and then love people. Well, if Jesus could value those two most highly, maybe we should too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's actually, so the, sort of the heart of, of the creed as I develop it is to, to launch off of Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets with those two principles, love God and, and love neighbor. Uh, we haven't really talked about the second chapter, but I'll just say a word about that, because especially for people who would identify as atheists, in this chapter, uh, the argument I make is that specifically for people who are not naturalists, but who nonetheless are atheists, but they believe that there is something beyond nature, but they don't know what it is, but they think it's impersonal in nature. And I interact with a couple well-known atheist philosophers along this line, Ronald Dworkin and J.L. Schellenberg. Both of them are, well, uh, Dworkin's passed on, but both of them were atheists, um, committed atheists. And yet they both believed that there was some principle of goodness, something that gave structure and meaning to human existence that was beyond nature, but it was impersonal. And someone else who's very much like that is Albert Einstein. Uh, and he got his views from Spinoza. Uh, so what I argue is that people who take that view, you could not only love your neighbor as the naturalist chapter explores, you could also seek to love God as an impersonal 
source of absolute meaning and, and purpose and structure and beauty in the universe. And you can begin to cultivate spirit, what we call spiritual disciplines in love of God, but all the while believing God is impersonal in nature. So I explore that idea in that chapter. Uh, and what it does is it begins to break down the simple binary of, well, you either have a theist or you have an atheist, uh, and never the twain shall meet. Well, actually, there, there's a lot more continuity between these groups than we might initially recognize. Uh yeah, I obviously I'm an atheist, so I don't believe that a God exists. I believe that no God exists. But I think that if people take nothing else away from this conversation, I'd really like them to take away that uh, we're more similar than we are different, you know? And even though often you see it in the Twitterverse, uh, a big boring sort of mentality that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we can have rigorous, fruitful discussions over what we think the truth is, and then also work together for what we think is important now, you know? So yeah. before we close, is there anything else in the book that you'd like to put out there that we haven't touched on? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I just simply at the at the end, I just conclude with an illustration drawn from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, my own father passed away from Alzheimer's a few years ago, and I talk about the film Still Alice, where you have a lady who has early onset Alzheimer's. It's a drama based upon a, a novel, but she has early all onset Alzheimer's, and it takes away her career. And what is so pro profound, though, about the, the book and the film is, is so she had been defined by her mind, by her beliefs. But ultimately, by the end of that story, when the Alzheimer's has become advanced, what she's defined by is love, the love of, of her family and her relationships around her. That's what sustains her. And that's my final uh, concluding point in the book is that Having right beliefs is important and we ought to strive for it to the degree that we're able. But love, I think, is the most important thing. And uh, it's a little cliche to say all oh, you need is love um, <laughs> for all the Beatles yeah. fans out there. But uh, honestly, I mean, if you are loving people, again, that is a, that is a huge achievement and a lifetime one. And uh, that's where I would like people to end. So. Well, uh, the book is The Doubter's Creed, How to Be a Christian When You Don't Believe It's True. And uh, I picked it up on Amazon. I'm sure there's other places you can grab it too. Uh, so far, I've really enjoyed the book. And so I encourage everybody to check it out. Thanks a lot for coming, Randall. It's been awesome uh, engaging with you. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. You bet. Thanks, Jordan and Jared. I really love talking to you guys. Really All appreciate right. it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, till next time, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.